Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all-music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is author S.W. Lawton, who wrote a book called Go All the Way, a literary appreciation of power pop. Welcome, S.W. Oh, hey, thanks a lot for having me on the show. I loved your book. It was very interesting. And uh, your co-author literally opens the book with a quote that said, explaining the meaning of power pop is a little like explaining what love is. You know it when you feel it, but damn if it's not different for everyone who experiences it. That's pretty spot on. Yeah. I co-edited this collection with Paul Myers and it's a really good partnership because we both love power pop, but we both come at it from sort of different angles. And uh, I really, you know, I love that in the introduction, Paul just sets up that definition that way, because one of the key propulsive elements of the power pop genre is there really isn't a definitive definition for the term power pop. And so really power pop fandom can be a bit like joining the high school debate club, you know, because you spend a lot of your time debating which band is or which band isn't, which song is, which song isn't, which album is, which album isn't. And in reality, I actually think that's why a lot of fans stick around the genre, because that's where the fun is, is in those debates. Several authors uh, later in the book lay out in great detail exactly what they think power pop is. But I think Michael Chabon has one of the best quotes in that he says, power pop at its purest is the music of hit records that miss. And I think that so perfectly sums up the, that kind of clubbiness that you just mentioned. Yeah, I mean, it really does. And I mean, having an author like Michael in the book, who is a fantastic writer, obviously, and a huge music fan, writing specifically about power pop was a real honor for us. And in a lot of ways, I think the book got built around that essay. The way that I came into the project, Tyson Cornell from Rare Bird Books had been working with Paul Myers on this concept, but they hadn't really gotten past sort of, we like Michael's essay and we've got a couple other people that we'd like to work with. So by the time I came in, we kind of built up around that essay. And that definition of power pop is so poetic and so beautiful and really so heartbreaking that it sort of gets to the heart of the matter in power pop because you get people writing music that if it were released in the 60s would have been huge radio hits. But because it's released in the 70s, 80s and 90s and 2000s, it's really a niche genre and they never get to get that kind of mainstream exposure. There is an astonishing mix of contributors and uh, a Pulitzer winning author, I think that's Michael Chabon, to filmmakers and musicians. And I'm curious, how did you and Paul's call for submissions work and how did you decide whose pieces to include? Uh, it's an interesting question. You know, the, the first book, when Paul and I were first starting to get to know each other, I think we made an initial list of target authors and we made another list of target subjects, meaning eras of power pop or specific power pop artists. And so we kind of approached it with these are the kinds of voices we'd like to have in the book or the kinds of perspectives we'd like to have in the book, or these are the kinds of essay topics we'd like to have in the book. And then where we could, we tried to match them up. So working off of that list, we actually just kind of went five or six authors at a time and saw the kind of responses we got until we felt like we had enough 
to make a solid collection. It is very, very interesting. And, and almost every author has some sort of definition, or at least what power pop maybe means to them. But let me ask you from the get-go, how do you define power pop? Oh, I mean, that is, uh, that's the million-dollar question. <laughs> uh, and, and look, it's funny because I've co-edited two books about power pop now. And I've also, at this point, written countless essays about this genre and at the same time, my own definition continues to evolve. So mm. I will say for the purposes of keeping it simple and because I feel like I should answer your question, <laughs> um, I'd say power pop is probably British influenced music, usually performed by what you'd consider sort of a traditional rock and roll band, guitars, drums, multiple vocals, maybe a keyboard here and there. Um, and it really is music that leans into hooks, harmonies. And my favorite power pop also leans into energy. So you're talking about bands like The Knack, Shoes, Cheap Trick, 2020, Teenage Fan Club, Fountains of Wayne. The, the list goes on and on. And it seems, to, as you just said, it seems to evolve all the time. You know, there's a number, and we'll get to those. There's a number of artists that are mentioned in some of these essays that I never thought they were power pop bands. And then after thinking about it, I said, okay, I get it. I can see that. But can you tell us who is generally credited for the term power pop and how his band's music figured into it? Because I did not see this one coming. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, right? Because in, in the power pop worlds uh, that I spend a lot of time in online, this is sort of taken for granted. And actually, people will roll their eyes at you if you, <laughs> if you mention this quote. But the person who coined the term power pop was Pete Townsend of The Who, it was an interview in 1967 where he was talking about their song Pictures of Lily, which I know that you know, and I'm sure all your listeners know. Mm -hmm. And he said, power pop is what we play, what the small faces used to play, and the kind of pop the Beach Boys played in the days of fun, 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 which I prefer, mm. right? So he's immediately talking about getting back to your roots, right? Like as music in the 60s is rapidly evolving, uh, to the point where the connection between like the early Beatles and the music that you're hearing in the mid seventies, there's hardly a connection. He's talking about, let's strip it back down to the original energy, the original sort of teenage energy and intent. And so when you talk about the bands that inspire power pop, that list usually includes the who definitely the Beatles. And then in America, the birds and the beach boys, and then sometimes the kinks get thrown in there too. And that's the the beginning, right? So if you're looking at a quick timeline, that's at the beginning. And then it goes through many mutations. And you mentioned a lot of those bands. Uh, and we'll get into those. Rather typically, the record companies did chase and sign power pop bands. But it seems that their interest really didn't last that long. Tell us about Knacklash, which was an interesting phrase. Was that a real thing? Uh, yeah, it was. It's actually one of my favorite terms in in the power pop world. Uh, because, you know, the Knack is a band that everybody knows. And if you're trying to quickly explain power pop to somebody, you can just say, you know, my Sharona by the Knack and they get the general idea. Right. So but if you were living in that era, the Knack kind of came out of nowhere. And that song just seemingly blew up overnight, which is if you're in the Knack, a great thing. And if you're a music fan, it's fantastic. But it also means that people kind of got tired of it at a certain point because it was just kind of everywhere. And then at the same time, the band kind of 
from what I'm to understand, struck this sort of rock star pose and had, uh, funny enough, a lot of attitude for being a new band with this hit single. I mean, they were doing stuff like refusing to give interviews to music magazines. And so then you've got the general public getting tired of the song and you've got the music media kind of turning on them. Uh, so that's what the knacklash is. And then like at the same time, the record labels went out and signed a bunch of bands that kind of sounded like the knack. But by the time those records had come out, the knacklash had happened and music had moved from sort of power pop being this rising star to the moment when new wave really takes off and, and power pop sort of gets obliterated. Do you know who coined that phrase? I don't. I, I would like to shake that person's hand. It's, it's really good. And, and you know, <laughs> if you're reading this book and you get to that essay, it clicks immediately. You know, two omnipresent bands that seem to be on any power poppers list. Is there such a word as power popper? I guess so. Sure. Would be Badfinger and Big Star. And I think that they're kind of under known, if that's another word, in general music fans. Where would you point folks unfamiliar with them for a first listen album or song wise? This is an interesting question to me because Paul Myers and I, when we were promoting uh, Go All the Way, we teamed up with one of our contributors who's a really well known and respected power pop writer and author uh, named John M. Borak we made a power pop bracket, right? And what we put it up on Facebook and the three of us chose 32 power pop songs and put them up for public voting, right? It took, it, it went over the course of like 10 days to go through all the rounds. And funny enough, the two finalists were the song September Girls by Big Star and the song No Matter What by Badfinger, which, I mean, it, as you mentioned, in terms of classic power pop, is a pretty impossible choice to make because mm -hmm. um, you really can't go wrong with either of those two songs. So if I'm going to point to a big star song to pay attention to, if you're not familiar, I'd say September Girls. And for Badfinger, I'd say no matter what, definitely. Steve, can, can you guess which of those two songs won the bracket? Uh, I would say September Girls. You'd be surprised to learn that no matter what actually won. Wow. Yeah, it's funny because I think of Badfinger more as a, ro a rock band. And, you know, actually both of them really. But Big Star definitely had that pop thing going on. Yeah, I mean, in the 70s, it's interesting, the genesis of the term. So, like, when we talk about the bands that inspired power pop, like The Who, The Beatles, The Birds, and The Beach Boys, power pop bands generally do not consider those bands power pop. They consider them the inspiration for power pop. And the bands that start creating this genre that evolves into power pop as we know it really were fans of those bands who wanted to make music that sounded like that or was in that vein. So it's bands like Big Star, it's bands like Badfinger, it's, and it's bands like Raspberries. You know, the first book, Go All the Way, is actually named after a very famous Raspberry song, which they're making this music in the 70s, starting very early in the 70s with Big Star and Badfinger and going all the way through they're making this music that's reverent and kind of unwittingly founding this genre. I went and interviewed Jody Stevens, who was the drummer of Big Star, and I spoke to him about Power Pop, and he, and, and he was very open about it, and he, was, he answered all my questions, but he stopped me at one point, and he said, you know, nobody called us Power Pop when we were, when we were actually a band. That didn't happen until years later. And so I think when you look at the bands that kind of founded the genre, you have to remember that they didn't set out to create a thing called power pop. People had to find a phrase to describe what they were doing. 
Yeah, wow, that's interesting. So you mentioned the Raspberries, who to me is probably quintessential power pop. And Ken Sharp's essay features an unlikely power pop fan, and that is Paul Stanley of Kiss. And it was very illuminating. Amongst other things, he admits that the beginning of the song Deuce was simply a bastardization of Go All the Way, which you mentioned. Of course, I had to A-B them, and it is astonishing. Yeah, I mean, you know, (laughs) I have to laugh because there's this sort of running joke in the power pop community about Kiss being a a power pop band. Like if if you go into a Facebook power pop group and somebody puts up some song, invariably like comment number 100 is going to be, yeah, this song's pretty good, but it's not as power pop as Kiss, (laughs) right? Because it's become this sort of running joke because obviously you listen to Kiss and you don't go like, aha, that's just died in the wool power pop. That really nails it. You know, you have to remember that Kiss, going back to when they were called, I think, Wicked Lester in like the early 70s, puts these guys right in the same frame of mind and references that a band like Big Star is going to have, right? They, they came up in the era of the Beatles. So it doesn't surprise me that they have a lot of the same influences, but what they do with those influences, in my mind, doesn't translate into power pop. But it becomes a kind of fun debate. And, and Ken Sharp is such a talented writer and such an incredible musician that, that he really makes a compelling argument. And it's a really interesting essay to read because it's one that makes you kind of really tilt your head and go, huh, I hadn't really ever thought of that before. There's an astonishing story in the book about the raspberries and opening for Kiss in Illinois <laughs> on New Year's Eve in 1974. Can you tell our listeners about that event? Uh, yeah, I, I when I read this in Ken's essay, I, I, I was astonished myself, right? Because the thing you most need to understand for this story to kind of land is that Iggy Pop was supposed to open the show, mm-hmm. right, <laughs> in Evanston, Illinois. But the local mayor got nervous because he was worried that Iggy was going to go out on stage and cut himself up with glass or God forbid, stage dive or do any of the antics that Iggy was known for. So he got Iggy thrown off the bill. And then totally unexpectedly, Kiss decides to add raspberries. And so you've got this huge crowd of Kiss fans who are geared up to see the bill that they bought tickets for, which is Iggy and Kiss. Um, And out comes this power pop band that's not really a good fit apparently they got put through the ringer by the crowd that night they survived and uh you know, the rest is kind of history you know with the raspberries uh in my research and reading your book uh the cover of that first album seems to be really a visual blueprint as well i mean you swap out the band and change the back the background color and you're there four dudes with shaggy haircuts posing on the album cover is really another homage to the British invasion, especially those early Beatles records, right? Like the pose they're striking there is an actual homage to the kinds of album covers that they would have been reverent to for those early Beatles records. And, and, you know, you mentioned the knack, but that was one where when I saw the raspberries one, I was like, well, there's, there's the knack cover, you know? And, and it's interesting because they do have mostly just flat tent backgrounds. There's nothing busy behind them. It's all about them, you know? And uh, it's interesting because, um, you know, it's a fun research project to do as I'm listening to it and comparing album covers, but there's definitely seems to be some sort of line there. Yeah. And I, and also if you continue that line forward, the one that looks the most like that album cover, that Raspberries album cover is actually the first Weezer album cover. It's the four of them standing in front of the blue screen. 
So I don't know if they were making a nod to the raspberries or it was just by accident, but it's definitely a theme that continues to run throughout rock and roll. Well, that's a good one. And what what is the connection between pop punk and power pop? There definitely seems to be something there. This comes up a lot for me because I was mentioning why my partnership with Paul feels so good on these books. I think he comes at it from much more of a pure pop or a power pop perspective. I came into power pop through the punk door, like very unwittingly. So like as a young teenager, I started listening to bands like Generation X or the Buzzcocks or the Jam or Descendants or Ramones. And, you know, later on bands like the Muffs or Green Day. And I hear power pop in that music or I hear the DNA of power pop in that music. And I say all this because, you know, I grew up in Southern California in the Hermosa Beach area. Uh, which is sort of considered the cradle of hardcore punk rock. So, you know, guys from Black Flag and the Circle Jerks went to my high school before me, right? And that's our local legacy. But I was always drawn to the kinds of punk rock that had hooks and often, uh, you know, songs about girls or relationships. Um, And a band like The Descendants is a really good example of that, where they're singing songs like Silly Girl or When I Get the Time. And I was always drawn to those pop hooks. And then I, as I kind of drifted away from hardcore punk and, and was it was sort of in the heart of the college radio alternative rock grunge era, um, it was when I started to kind of discover bands like Teenage Fan Club and Material Issue that it all kind of started to click that there was this thing called power pop. For all those reasons, I was primed to like bands like Green Day. And wh- when I listen to a band like Green Day, you may have to expand the tent a little bit to get them considered power pop. But I definitely think there's enough DNA in that music for fans of power pop to also appreciate what the pop punk bands were doing in the 90s. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with author S.W. Lawden about his book with Paul Myers called Go All the Way, A Literary Appreciation of Power Pop. 
unlike a lot of music genres, I noticed that there seems to be less of a generational divide. You know, there's a connection for everyone from Badfinger to Deborah Harry or Liz Fair to Jellyfish for fans of power pop. Do you agree? And why do you think that is? Power pop is interesting in a lot of ways in that respect, because it's kind of a flag without a country. If you listen to punk music, you go see a punk band play and you ask them after their show, are you guys a punk band? They'll go, hell yeah, we're a punk band. And if you go see a heavy metal band play and you ask them after their show, hey, are you guys a heavy metal band? They'll probably go like, hell yeah, we're a heavy metal band. But if you ask a band that has been defined by somebody else as power pop, if they are power pop, it's like 50-50 that they're going to get mad at you, um, that they don't want to wear that flag or they don't want to be described as power pop. Um, and I think a lot of that goes back to the Knacklash, mm. right? Because there was this shining moment when people playing this kind of music had the chance at mainstream success. But after that happens, it kind of becomes this kiss of death if you're described as a power pop band. And actually, in the book, Go All the Way, uh, my good friend Marco DeSantis, who's the guitar player in a, in a band called Sugar Cult, that was very successful in the, in the 2000s, toured the world with Green Day and Blink-182, they were out of Santa Barbara and they started off with this band that, you know, wrote poppy punk songs and wore white shirts and skinny black ties and spent a lot of time dodging the, the term power pop. And he writes in this essay that they had a suspicion that maybe they were a power pop band, but they fought being described that way because they were fearful that that would mean they wouldn't get a record deal or they wouldn't get tours or they wouldn't find a fan base. And so I think that's why the lineage is all kind of mixed up. I would say that the common denominator is Beatles fandom. And really, if you trace it all back, and uh, my bandmate in the Brother Steve, and before that, when I was in a band called Czar, Jeff Whalen wrote an essay in Go All the Way about the Beatles. And his take on power pop is that power pop in its purest form is music made by Beatles fans who want to be in the Beatles. <laughs> and so for him, it all ladders back to the Beatles. And I think that all those elements is why the, there's no real clear lineage and why you can go band to band and decide if they're power pop or not. But you quickly end up going song to song because there's hardly any bands that made more than one or two records that are purely power pop all the way through their career sort of answers a question I was going to ask in two ways, but I think you answered it is that, you know, are there new power pop music or is it more of a classic genre? But in your explanation where you said it's Beatles fans, I mean, that's evergreen, right? It is evergreen. And there's actually fantastic power pop being made all the time. It has its moments where it kind of bubbles up to the surface with some of the bands that I talked about, like, you know, uh, the Plim Souls, Matthew Sweet, Teenage Fan Club, um, Material Issue, Weezer, definitely Fountains of Wayne. These guys bubble up, but there's beneath the surface, there's always sort of this underground culture of power pop happening. And actually right now, there's a ton of really great power pop bands making music. There's a guy named Kurt Baker, who's uh, an American who lives in Spain right now. He was in a pop punk band called The Leftovers, and he makes a lot of fantastic power pop music. There's a, an Italian band called Radio Days. They make very classic power pop music that's very close to British Invasion sounding. There's an English band called Bad Nerves, and they're sort of punk or post-punk leaning, but describe themselves as power pop, and they're fantastic. And then 
My latest obsession, I mean, I've really gone down this rabbit hole with this band, <laughs> a young Philadelphia band called Second Grade that is a sort of indie power pop band. And I am just flipping out about their record hit to hit. It's got like, I think, 24 songs on it. So they're kind of in the GBV range when it comes to like song length, but it's really hooky. And I hear a lot of Big Star in it. I hear a lot of Teenage Fan Club in it. And I hear a lot of Fountains of Wayne in it. So there's always new power pop out there. And if you spend enough time in these Facebook power pop groups, you'll find new bands and amazing new songs all the time. It's interesting that you mentioned Fountains of Wayne because your essay is on that band. And I think it's a band that most people know for their hit, Stacy's Mom. But what are a few of their other songs that you would consider power pop? Because that's not a, a tag I would have applied to that band necessarily. Yeah, I mean, I think I definitely consider them a power pop band. And when I was looking for a subject to write about and go all the way, they seemed like a natural fit to me. But I have talked to people since who are like, really, they're a power pop band? And I think you have to kind of dig into their catalog to understand why that is. For my piece in Go All the Way, I was very, very fortunate to get to interview Adam Schlesinger, who, who's one of the two main songwriters in that band. And uh, I had some really fantastic conversations with him. And he sort of explains that he was a Beatles fanatic as a kid. He had this cool aunt that made sure he had all the Beatles records. And so from a very young age, that becomes the blueprint for the way he thinks about music and his songwriting. And if you listen through that lens then you definitely hear the Beatles in their music and you also start to hear why they could be a power pop band. So I asked him specifically, what do you think your most power pop song is? And he mentioned the song, It Must Be Summer from their second album, Utopia Parkway. So that's the one I generally try to point people to. Well, one of the really interesting things about this book is the rabbit holes it, it opens up, you know, and, and I have to ask, were there any surprises to you in the bands that some of the people uh, submitted? Um, not really. I mean, the way that we tried to approach this, right? Like the, what the book isn't is a really thoroughly researched historical representation of the history of power pop. There are plenty of essays and books out there that try to cover that topic. Because this is an essay collection and because we wanted to take a literary approach, meaning it's more writerly. It's not just music writers, but it can be writers from all different walks of life. We, we kind of tried to surround the topic of power pop rather than trying to define it. So the way I think about the book is it's like a really interesting cocktail party. And as you wander around the room and have conversations with little groups of people, you're going to be having interesting conversations about specific bands or specific eras or specific albums. So everybody kind of fits in that bigger tent. Um, I do think that the one you mentioned earlier, uh, Ken Sharp's essay about Kiss, is one of the ones that kind of comes out of left field. But other than that, there weren't too many big surprises. Nobody pitched anything that I was like, what? Everything kind of fit. And if I didn't immediately felt like it fit, after a five-minute conversation, I could see why they wanted to write about that band or that era or that album through the lens of Power Pop. I was going to mention how personal it was, but I, I like Cocktail Party yeah. better, so we'll go with <laughs> yeah. that. And, and it's true. Ira Elliott, the drummer for Nada Surf, wrote an excellent essay specifically about power pop drummers, which is an interesting view on the genre, particularly for you, right? How did that one come about? Well, so before I decided to write the Fountains of Wayne essay, and the original idea for the essay I was going to write was about the power pop drumming specifically, because if you're talking about power pop, 
what is the power in that? And so as a drummer myself, I thought I would write an essay about power pop drummers, but then through a mutual friend, I got introduced to Ira Elliott from Not A Surf. And after having like a five minute conversation with him and realizing that he is a Ringo star obsessed drummer of the highest order <laughs> and one of the smartest, funniest guys you'd ever want to meet and has a real passion for music. I was like, you know what? You should write this essay and I'll find something else to write about. So I gave him that essay and he just knocked it out of the park. But funny enough, the template for that essay became the idea for my next book, which is actually coming out in February. And it's called Forbidden Beat Perspectives on Punk Drumming. And it's another essay collection. This time I curated it by myself. And it's 28 essays, top five lists and interviews all about the history of punk rock drumming, starting with proto-punk, you know, 60s bands like the Sonics, Mm -hmm. uh, the Stooges, going up through the Ramones and then uh, into the hardcore bands. And actually, Ira contributed an essay to that that is just fantastic. Well, there's a lot of great takes in here. And I'd like to give a shout out to all the authors and uh, some of them, Jeff Rogby, Annie Zaleski, shout out to them, have been on our podcast. Any book author that wants to reach out to you, I'm talking to you, Ken Sharp. (laughs) To feel free to reach out to us. I loved his Kiss book, yeah, uh, which was so good. You and Paul, you've already published a sequel called Go Further, More Literary Appreciations of Power Pop, with a whole other list of contributors. Was that process any different for the second volume? Uh, To a degree, I think we learned a lot doing the first book. And um, lucky for us, the response to the first book was so positive within the Power Pop community that both Paul and I had people reaching out immediately after it was published to say that if we did another volume, they'd like to be involved. So in that way, we didn't have to do as much legwork to kind of explain the concept to people because people had the first book as a template and that they could come to us with ideas. Beyond that, we wanted to make sure that we didn't just repeat sort of the same formula over and over. So we really pushed ourselves to add different bands from different eras and try to get some different perspectives and different voices talking about this music so that we kept that sort of cocktail party vibe going. And everybody that reads these two books, hopefully, is able to walk away either having learned something or maybe more importantly, having just learned a different perspective and had a moment to reconsider something that they took for granted and to look at it in a different way. Let me ask you this. uh, So you know everything about Power Pop. Who would you suggest that people may not know? I think you already offered a couple, but are there some underrated power pop bands from kind of the classic era? I mean, definitely in the second book, I write about a band called 2020. If people have heard of them, they've more than likely heard what is sort of their hit in air quotes. Uh, It's called Yellow Pills, and it turns up on a lot of compilations Uh, You'll hear it spun on power pop internet radio shows or sort of left of the dial radio shows. They were a really fantastic L.A. band that actually formed in Tulsa, Oklahoma in the late 70s, moved to L.A. And then in like six months, created a stir and got a record deal and put out a self-titled album that is perfect. It is like an amazing record. And uh, so I got to talk to two of the guys from that band for that uh, essay that I wrote. And I always point people to them. And I mentioned this before, but I'm going to stick with it. I think people need to get beyond Stacy's mom uh, with Fountains of Wayne because they released a lot of records and there's some fantastic songwriting and amazing musicianship on those records. 
And I think there's a different kind of band to discover in Fountains of Wayne's catalog than just sort of the one hit wonder band that people think they are. If you really listen to those records, there is a super talented band that should get a lot more credit for the caliber of their songwriting and their performances. Well, it's a fascinating read, and it's definitely not your everyday music book. And I'd like to congratulate you and Paul. It's really interesting, and I, I recommend people read it because there's all sorts of stuff in there. Oh, thank you so much, and thank you so much for having me on the show. I, I, I'm actually a big listener. I, I listen to all your episodes. Oh, wow. Thank you very much for the support. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com, and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our Deep Dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.